Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. God's word says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll, the prophet Isaiah, was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's pray. Lord, it's not by power, it's not by might, it's not by eloquence of speech, but it's by your Spirit that your will will be accomplished. And we ask that your Spirit would speak through the preaching of your word this morning. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, a society-changing mission, a bold venture, and all with the sovereign's permission. Have you ever read the story of Nehemiah in the Old Testament? Uh, he was an Israelite, but he was in exile under King Artaxerxes. And though he was an Israelite, he was made cupbearer to the king. And one day the king asked him, why are you grieved? And at first Nehemiah was afraid because you're upset in the king's presence you could be killed but he had been praying for some time and he told the king my heart is burdened because my city jerusalem lies in ruins and the king said well what would you like to do and he told him i'd like to go and restore the city and god graciously moved and moved king artaxerxes to not only give permission to nehemiah to go but also to give official documentation that this was allowed and to give him the resources to buy all of the wood and other supplies needed to restore it. Well, then Nehemiah goes back. But at first, he doesn't tell the people. He goes and investigates. He expect, inspects the city, the walls. And then afterwards, he comes and he tells the men of the city his mission, his purpose, his plan to restore the city of Jerusalem. We're here this morning. Jesus has a mission much greater than Nehemiah. He comes to restore more than just a city. And he comes and he tells of his mission in his home synagogue. Now synagogues came into existence after the destruction of the temple 
in 586 BC, and they functioned basically as local places of worship where they would gather to pray, to read scripture, to sing songs, and after the reading of scripture, one man would come up and explain it. And when a famous teacher came in town, as we'll see, Jesus was a famous teacher in the region, they would let him have the opportunity to teach in the local synagogue. And at this time, his first time back, Jesus picks to tell of his mission on earth. But again, if I stopped and maybe talked to each one of you individually and I said, why did Jesus come to earth? What would you say? What was his mission? What was his purpose? If you interact with one of your neighbors and they go, well, you went to church. What's, what's that all about? What did Jesus come to do? What would you tell them? Well, Jesus leaves no doubt about his mission and his purpose. And he tells us, and Luke shows us this, this by three things. If you have a bulletin, you can see all this on the back. First, in verses 14 through 15, the mission continues. Then in verses 16 through 21, we're going to see the prophetic proclamation of his mission. And then lastly, 22 through 30, the local rejection of his mission. But notice again, verse 14, because there it says Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Well, he returned because he'd been in the wilderness fighting the temptations of the devil. And you might have thought, well, Jesus came what he came to do. Satan tempted Adam and Eve, as we saw last week, and where they failed, Jesus lived perfectly, so now he can go. Well, Jesus doesn't leave. His mission continues on for three more years. And this is really an important aspect of the Bible, that it never just gives us an act of God and then leave us to try and guess, figure out what it was. God, after he acts in history, always explains what it was, how we should think about it, how we should respond. For example, one of the greatest acts in the Old Testament is the Exodus. And yet, if you look at the Exodus from Egypt out of slavery, that doesn't even take up half the book of the book Exodus. The rest of it is explaining why God did this. How should we now live as saved people? How do we worship? How do we live day to day? Well, here we see Jesus didn't just come to defeat the devil and then leave. He came to instruct us. He came to show us that he is the Messiah through his miraculous deeds. He gave us to giving a loving example. And then, what all this means and how we should respond. And so Jesus is going forth in the power of the Spirit to do this ministry. Now, notice in, verse, in chapter 3 and 4 how much Luke is emphasizing the Spirit's role. Look at Luke chapter 3, verse 22. Here, this is the inauguration of Jesus' ministry, so to speak, when he's baptized. And it says... And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. From the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the Spirit has been on him. Or chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. You know, the, the Spirit is constantly empowering Jesus to do his work. You know, only God's Spirit leads to real lasting, eternal change. Thus, Zechariah 4, 6 says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. We all want change, and we can do some things that lead to temporary change, but true, lasting change only happens through the Spirit of God. And that's why it's vital for us to pray. Pray individually. Pray corporately. Praying that God would work 
through His Spirit. Yes, we need good teaching. Yes, we need to study God's Word. But even that can be empty unless God's Spirit comes. I heard John Stott say once, If we have the Word of God without the Spirit of God, we are going to dry up. If we have the Spirit of God without the Word of God, we will blow up. But if we have the Spirit and the Word of God together, then we will grow up into maturity. And so, we have this role. We're to act, but then we're to pray and have the Spirit come. You know, we can think of this, maybe, of the way a house gets provided electricity. What does an electrician do? Well, they go into the house, and they prepare it for electricity. They connect the breaker box, and they run the wires to all the various outlets and switches. And they set everything up. But when the electrician leaves, you actually don't have any power. You then need a lot of city inspections, but that would take too long to explain all that. You then need the electrical provider company to come and connect your breaker box to the electricity. You have everything set up. Everything's in place. But until they come and connect it, your house just has wires with nothing running through it. Well, God gives us tasks to do like the electrician. We need to install the breaker boxes of gatherings. We need to have the junction boxes of relationships. We need the wires of God's word taught. However, nothing is going to happen until God's spirit, the electrical provider, so to speak, comes and enables those to be connected to the power of God. And Jesus is living in the enabling power of the Spirit, and we must seek that too. Well, Luke then goes on to tell us that Jesus taught and ministered in Galilee, and the people are praising him. Now, Luke doesn't give us details, he just states that. But in other portions, we're told that they are astonished at his teaching, because he taught with authority. They often taught by saying, well, Rabbi, this says this, and then Rabbi, this says that. Well, Jesus has said, God's word says this. But his teaching, his actions are so powerful that they, he starts to have the gossip spread about him. It might be something like this. Did you hear what Zedekiah said happened to his cousin in Capernaum? No. What happened? Well, he says his cousin had been blind from birth, and then this guy named Jesus came and touched his eyes, and now he can see. No way. Well, you know what? I heard my wife said she was talking to our neighbor Miriam, and Miriam had been hearing about Jesus, so she went to listen to him, and his teaching was so incredible. Really? Why well, here? he's coming here this next Sabbath. Well, I'm going to be there. And we'll see that in just a minute. But there's all this excitement, this speculation about Jesus who had come. But notice again that though Jesus did come and do the miraculous defeat of the devil, that wasn't the end. He didn't just do one thing and leave. And that's also true for us. We don't just do one thing. We don't just trust in Christ, get baptized, and then God calls us to heaven. We, like Jesus, have a mission to continue to live out here on earth as we seek to follow him. You know, one of the most common metaphors in the New Testament is that we have a walk, that we daily walk in the footsteps of Christ. Well, here, Jesus wants them to realize that his mission is not something he invented, but rather, the second point, there is a prophetic proclamation of his mission. So in verse 16, Jesus comes to Nazareth where he is brought up. Now, Nazareth was a small, out-of-the-way town. Most Israelites probably didn't even know it existed. 
But it's Jesus' hometown, so as was his custom on the Sabbath, he went there to worship. And as I said, the famous teachers would be given the privilege of teaching after the scripture was read. And they had to, they gave to Jesus the scroll of Isaiah, and there he unrolls it. Wouldn't be a book like ours, it'd be a scroll, and he unrolls it to Isaiah 61, and he primarily reads from there. Then he rolls it back up and gives it to the attendant. He sits down, and as there's their custom, they all turn to see what he would say. And his words are simple. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You could hear a pin drop, as we would say in the room. What? What is he saying? Well, let's think. What is Jesus saying? What are all these words, these prophecies telling us? Well, basically, it's saying that the Spirit is going to anoint this Messiah, and he's going to come. We've already seen Jesus has been anointed by the Spirit. And then it says he's anointed to do five things. First, in verse 18, to proclaim good news to the poor. Let me just stop here because from this to the rest, it often gets divided into two views. First, there's people who say, well, everything that Jesus is talking about is spiritual. So he's going to give spiritual sight. He's going to proclaim spiritual liberty. One commentator I really like, I read a lot, he inserts every time the word spiritual in his commentary. A lot of people go, no, 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 no. Jesus is teaching in political, in social terms. Jesus is giving a political, a social, economic message. He's coming to release people from oppression. That's how we should view this. It doesn't have to do with spiritual things. Well, in contrast to those, I think we should say that Jesus is speaking in every sense. Yes, he's speaking spiritually. Yes, he's speaking economically. Yes, he's speaking politically. Jesus came to take care of all of it, to reverse every single effect of sin. He's coming to reverse the curse of sin, what, the, what Christians often call the fall, the fall into sin. So in regards to poverty, yes, there is spiritual poverty. There's relational poverty. There's economic poverty. And we could go on and on. And in regards, let's just think of financial poverty. There's many reasons. People can be poor because they don't have the education for the jobs that are available. They can be poor because they're oppressed. They could be poor because there are natural disasters that ruined everything. So they have no resources. They can be poor because they're lazy. They can be poor because there's lack of opportunities. And we could give multiple reasons because there's no single reason earth-wise that we give that encapsulates every single reason for physical financial poverty. For some it is personal responsibility. For others it is nothing with them. It's the situations around them. But there is one explanation for poverty. It encompasses them all. And that is sin. And I don't mean personal sin at all. It's the curse of sin that has led to the lack of education that has led to oppression, that has led to natural disasters, laziness, lack of opportunity to work, and handicaps. Thus, if we want to totally eradicate poverty, we have to totally eradicate the curse of sin. And that's what Jesus came to do. He came to reverse all the effects of the fall, which include the spiritual, the social, the political, and we could go on and on, the mental, the psychological, the relational, we could keep going. He came to reverse every single effect that sin brought upon this world. Thus, 
What did he do? He came to defeat death and sin by giving his own life as a substitutionary atonement, taking the curse of sin and death and defeating it so that now new life, hope, can be given. So the primary, though not only issue, is spiritual, but then it leads to the restoration of the rest, the economic and everything else that we mentioned. But Jesus realizes the primary form, though not only, is spiritual. Thus, 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And while there's nothing inherently noble about being poor, it has often been the case that those who are the most financially poor realize their desperate need for help and have come to God. Well, second, he came not only to proclaim good news to the poor, but to proclaim liberty to the captives. You may know of Joseph in the Old Testament, the son of Jacob, who was sold by his brothers into slavery. He was a captive, and then even then, he was lied about and put into prison. Or you may know of John the Baptist, we just saw last week, was put into prison. And Jesus comes to end all injustice, to release those who are unjustly held captive. But there's also a spiritual captivity. Jesus said in John 8, 34-36, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. A slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You know, here in the U.S., we are blessed with so many liberties. But personally, or in relationships, you probably know people who are enslaved to their lust, captured by their bitterness, in bondage to gossip. They're enslaved to their body image, and we could go on. But Jesus comes to break the power of cancel sin. He comes to set the prisoners free. In Him, you can be free indeed. Well, third, the Spirit anoints the Messiah, it tells us, to give to the blind the recovery of sight. You know, in the Gospels, we read several times of Jesus healing the blind. Well, why? Well, because He cares. And because He wants to show, I came to fulfill what the Old Testament said. Again, He came to reverse the effects of the fall. Now, every person who's blind, and you could insert any other ailment, does not mean they're blind because they sin. Please don't misunderstand me. It's the curse of sin. So, for example, in John 9, Jesus heals a blind man, and the disciples wrongly think, well, either he or his parents sinned. But Jesus says, no, no, no. It was not that this man sinned or that his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. But then the Pharisees, they're upset because though Jesus healed, he did it on the wrong day. He did it on the Sabbath. So they begin a little investigation. And then it says in John 9, 29, the Pharisees said, As for this man, Jesus, we did not know where he comes from. Well, the healed blind man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And the man who now sees, 
his logic is impeccable. He's saying, look, have you ever heard of anyone healing a blind man? No. Does God listen to people who are in rejection of his will? No. Well, then this man who just healed a blind man has to be from God. But how do the Pharisees then respond? You were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. You know, in this story, we see who's really blind. It's not the man from birth. It's the Pharisees. They don't want to see the truth. They can't see the truth. It's as Paul will later say in 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Jesus Christ. The Messiah came, though. Jesus came to give sight to the blind physically and spiritually. But again, it's not in our power to do it. So we have to pray that the Spirit of God would remove the scales and give us sight to see. Well, fourth, the Spirit anoints this Messiah to send liberty to those who are oppressed. Now, sometimes, especially if Christians start talking about oppression, other Christians start saying, whoa, 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 that's like Marxist ideas. We don't need to be talking about that. that that's not, those things are not for us. But a broken clock is right twice a day. And just because some people talk about oppression a lot doesn't mean that we should deny that oppression exists. Even in the Bible, James 5, at the beginning it says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. James is condemning rich people who are oppressing others. The rich do at times oppress the poor. The powerful do at times oppress those less powerful. When we looked at Luke 3, what did John the Baptist tell the soldiers and the tax collectors to do? Basically, stop using your power in oppressive ways. Don't take more money than you should. Don't shake down the citizens. You know, we can look through scripture and see when religious people, religious leaders, sadly, have taken advantage of and oppressed their people. Jesus came to end oppression. He did not come to oppress us. He came to set us free. That's why he said his burden is easy. His yoke is light. Thus, if we're to be imitators of Jesus, whenever we see oppression and we have the ability, we should speak up and we should seek ways to end that oppression. You know, being a warrior for social justice should not be seen as a negative thing. Jesus was a warrior for social justice. However, we have to make sure that the social issues we fight for are actually real issues. You know, I would argue that many social justice warriors, as we call them today, fight for things that the Bible would say are unjust and are immoral. So the, but we shouldn't look at those who fight for certain things and go, well, that's wrong, so we're against that. No. Jesus cared about oppression, and we should too. Where it is wrong, we should say that as well. Well, fifth, the Spirit sends this one, it tells us, to proclaim the acceptable or favorable year of the Lord, the Lord's favor, verse 19. Now, for these people in the synagogue, as soon as Jesus started reading this, their mind would have leapt to what they call the year of Jubilee. You can look this up in Leviticus 25. 
in their economic system, in Israel's economic system, the land was distributed to every tribe. And then within each tribe, a clan, and then within the clan, the family would be given a certain portion. Well, every 50 years, the land would go back to those people because in between 50 years, you might need money and you would sell your portion of the land for money or you might be hard up and you might sell yourself into indentured servitude or you might take a loan. But every 50 years, the year of Jubilee, all of that was canceled. All your debts taken away, everything forgiven, your land given back to you. Well, here... Jesus is telling him the year of Jubilee is depicting much more than economic releasing of burdens. It's coming to declare that all that you need to be forgiven of is forgiven. Economic, spiritual, any debt to God can be set free. And so here they're hearing this, that the new age of God's salvation has come, that they will be released from bondage and liberated to him. But then the amazing thing is, after Jesus rolls us up, he says, this has been fulfilled today. Now, it's common today to find people who say, well, Jesus, he lived, yes, Jesus was a good man, a good philosopher, a good teacher, but Jesus actually never claimed to be God. That actually is Christians after Jesus' death, and didn't really rise from the dead, he'd say. But after that, then they wanted to think of him as God. So they put into the Gospels all these stories where Jesus said he was God. Except, consider this claim. Jesus just said he's going to remove all oppression. He's going to give liberty to all people. He's going to give sight to all the blind. No human, unless he's crazy, would make such a claim. Only someone who truly thought he was the son of God, would say this. So the fact that Jesus claimed to be the son of God is not people looking back. It's rather looking at what Jesus himself said and did in saying he is the son of God. But this really goes back to our earlier question. Why did Jesus come? What was his purpose? Well, 400 years before this, Isaiah prophesied of why he would come. He would come to reverse all the effects of of the curse of sin. He came to rescue and restore God's kingdom. And he does this by being our representative and dying for our sin. And through his death and resurrection, he is removing all the effects of sin. You know, while on earth, Jesus gave an appetizer of this. When he healed the sick, when he cast out demons, when he did many other miracles of restoration. Yet the feast will come when he comes again and totally eradicates all sickness, all sorrow, all pain and death. Now, this passage really should cause us to wrestle with some deep foundational views of this world. Because everyone, as they look at the world, as you get older, you go, this world is not the way it should be. People treat each other in ways they shouldn't treat each other. There's suffering. There's sorrow in this world. Why is this here? And there have been a lot of religious answers to this. One is like this. Well, evil and suffering in this life are based upon what you did in your previous life. And thus you have to endure it. Well, that would be the view of Hinduism. There's reincarnation and the idea of karma that what goes around comes around. But that's the exact opposite of Christianity. Because Christianity is about grace. 
us getting what we don't deserve. You know, if there's no grace, then there's no hope. Because I definitely cannot stay out, lived a good life, so my next life should be better. It's not karma at all. Well, others, Buddhists will say, well, suffering, it's just an illusion. It's not really real. Yet our experiences in the Bible make clear the suffering really does exist. We've all experienced it. Some dualistic religions, such as Zoroastrianism, believe, well, there's really two equally strong gods or forces, and they're duking it out. You see this in movies. Don't turn to the dark side of the force. So there's this good side and bad side, and they're fighting it out. Well, that's not true either. God is over all. And yes, there's rebellion, but he's not in conflict as though we don't know how the end will come. Well, others will say, no, no, no. All those religious ideas, that is just a way to keep people oppressed. Really, it's an opiate for the masses. They want people to follow them. So what we need to do instead is free people from anything oppressive. You know, these are the ideas of Marxism or communism. So what we need to do is make everyone have everything in common. Make sure no one is believing in any kind of God. So we'll have no more personal property. We'll get rid of all oppressors. But the only problem is you have to have someone on top to make sure that everyone's equal. And in every time when this has been implemented, somehow the person on top never is equal with any of those underneath. And the historical reality is if you look at any place where Marxist ideas have been pushed, and as they've tried nobly to remove oppression, they have actually been the worst perpetrators of it. In mass killings to get rid of oppressors. In the stifling of ideas because we don't want those ideas in our society. Well, why? Because though their goal is noble, yes, we want a just world, they don't take care of the root problem. Sin. You're always going to have leaders in charge, and those leaders are going to be sinful. So if we want to end oppression, we've got to go much deeper than that. And we could look at many other economic and political solutions offered that, look, if we'll just do this, then we'll have utopia on earth. This is how the world should be. However, the, none of them have ever worked, because none of them go deep enough. They only deal with the symptoms of a sinful world, they don't deal with the heart of the issue that we live in a sinful world. Now, I don't say all this to say we shouldn't care about oppression or economic issues. We should. We should try to help with the symptoms of sin. So don't mishear me. However, this should cause us to pause when people arise to power and say, look, if everyone will just do this, everything's going to be wonderful. We should realize, no. It's not, yes, it may get better, and we should try to implement things that will make things better. But it is not the ultimate hope. You know, the point I'm trying to make is that Jesus is declaring here that his mission is so much broader than just forgiving us for personal guilt over sin. You know, I, I think if we went and asked most Christians, why did Jesus come? They'd say, Jesus came to die for my sins. That's true. It's wonderful. It gives us hope. But Jesus came to die for more than just your personal guilt over sin. He came to restore the whole world by taking the curse of sin so that all would be restored to the way it should be, where there no longer is any oppression, where there no longer is any injustice. Now you might be thinking, 
Well, you had me going until you said Jesus did that because look around the world. Jesus came, he's gone, and we still have blindness. We still have oppression. We still have injustice. Did Jesus fail at his mission? Well, I want you to hold your finger here and turn back to Isaiah chapter 61, where Jesus is primarily quoting from and reading from Isaiah 61. So in Luke chapter 4, Jesus ended by saying, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Well, Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that is where Jesus stopped. Now, obviously, Jesus had to stop somewhere. He wasn't just going to keep reading all of Isaiah. But he stopped there. But notice what it says next. And the day of the vengeance of our God. Now, is it that Jesus was like, well, yeah, I don't really buy those Old Testament ideas of vengeance. Well, no, not at all. Jesus didn't quote that then because he's saying, I come the first time to offer hope. But I will come again with a day of vengeance. And so the reason that Jesus has not removed everything yet is because we're still sinners. If he removed everything, he would remove us. And he's offering out hope to you and to me saying, there's still time. Turn to me. Trust in me. I'm the hope for the world, Jesus says. Trust now in the year of the Lord's favor. Because if you don't trust in the year of the Lord's favor, one day you will have the day of my vengeance. And so Jesus' mission is fulfilled in two parts. He came the first time to conquer sin and death. He will come again to finish by eradicating sin and death. And yet now he's holding out hope that you can still turn. Notice, it's a year of God's favor. A day. Only a day of God's vengeance. God always wants his mercy to triumph over his judgment. But he is just though. And he will not allow sin, even my personal sin, your personal sin, to go unpunished. But turn now in the year of the Lord's favor. And you can know all that Jesus came to do. But we see that not everyone believes. And we see that last verses 22 through 30, the local rejection of his mission. Verse 22 starts out, everyone, oh, this is wonderful. They delight. This is so good. The local boy, he's come back. He's a regional pastor hero. Oh, we love him. He's saying that the year of Jubilee is going to come. This is great. Now, they're a little shocked. I mean, this was Joseph's son, the carpenter. We can't believe it. But though they're speaking graciously, they also, verse 23, are asking for a sign. That's the proverb. Physician, heal yourself. They're saying, look, you did stuff in Capernaum. We want you to do it here. However, Jesus is not a genie. He doesn't do miracles and signs when people want him to. You know, he has given evidence. They know he did stuff in Capernaum. He will do more signs so they can know who he is. However, he is not on people's beck and call to do a little miracle here or there whenever they want it. And so Jesus responds by saying that no hometown will ever accept a prophet. And to show this, 
And to warn of the seriousness of rejecting him, he alludes to two Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Now these men served as prophets at a very low point in the history of Israel, when they were rebelling and serving other gods. And first, there came Elijah. He was in a year of famine, three and a half years of famine, actually. And everyone was in need. But Jesus says, well, who did he go help? A widow. Someone who they thought was not that important. And a widow, not just a widow, but someone from Sidon. Well, Sidon is where Queen Jezebel, the oppressor, was from. This was doubly insulting. What? Elijah, God's servant, was sent not to us, but to this rebellious nation? I can't believe it. And then Elisha, second, there are many lepers. But God only healed Elisha, a man, a foreign man, not just a foreign man. Again, they'd be shocked because... He was actually the commander-in-chief of the nation that would attack Israel. What? You're not going to heal us? They don't deserve it. And again, that's where we show our wrong thoughts. Because whenever we think we deserve God's favor, we don't truly understand God. Because grace is not something deserved. Grace is the opposite of what we deserve. It's undeserved favor. That God puts upon us. And Jesus is warning them. Look. If you reject me. I'm still going to bless people. But it's going to be outside of you. And so. Listen. And yet. They. Don't hear this. With the loving words. Jesus gives them. Rather. They're no longer thinking of the. Joyful anticipation of the year of Jubilee. Now their faces are flushed with anger. Their noses flare. They burn with wrath. And in their rage, they go to cast Jesus off the city from a hill. But somehow, Jesus passes right through their midst. You see, Jesus' hour had not yet come. And no one could take his life. He would voluntarily give it. Because he wanted to take the curse of sin. In this final section here where Jesus declares his mission is really a stark warning to us. You know, it's interesting, if you read all the Gospels after this, Jesus never goes back to Nazareth. You know, those who should be most likely to accept him are those who actually reject him. You know, they were gathering because they wanted to hear God's word. But the whole meaning of God's word was there before them. And they said, well, we don't actually want it like that. And sadly... It's true of many churches today. Years ago, many churches mentally said, if God is what this Bible says He is, we don't want any part with that. So we're not going to believe this. We're not going to teach that. And they've rejected. And if you went in to preach these things, they would want to cast you off a hill metaphorically. They'd be angry. What? That's not true. And even in churches that say, well, this is true. If people will come and say, well, your life lives in so much contradiction to that. They don't thank you and say, thank you. I want to live in line with Jesus. They too get angry at you. Because they don't really want to hear what Jesus called them to. They want their Jesus genie to come and give them what they want. Just come affirm my life. Tell me how great I am. And Jesus says, no, you're the blind. You're the oppressed. You're the people who are in desperate need of help. You don't have it all together. And we don't want to hear that. But the good news to the blind and the oppressed is only given to those who realize, 
I'm that person. I'm the one who's spiritually blind. I'm the one who is in captive to my sin. I'm the one who has no hope outside of Jesus. And this can be us. It's interesting. As you read through the Gospels, who actually attacks Jesus the most? It's not the big rebellious sinners. It's the religious people. They're even the ones who are going to end up crucifying him. But here, Jesus is saying, look, you need to recognize the depth of your problem and then delight in me. Rejoice in who I am and what I've come to do. Now, along for us, with delighting in who Jesus is and what he came to do, I think this is calling us to follow in his mission. Now, I want to be clear here. We're not called to redeem the world, and we should never talk like that. Only Jesus can save the world. But we should follow our Savior into the world. Where we can, we should seek to alleviate the sufferings of poverty, of illness, oppression, and injustice, and all the other ills. And as we seek to do that, we know the greatest poverty, the greatest sickness, the greatest captivity is sin. And so we don't just care about their souls. We don't just care about their bodies. We care about the whole person, body and soul. And I think Jesus' mission here should reorient us about what our life should be doing. I've shared this before, but I think it's very poignant. There was a pilot once who got on the flight intercom and said, I have good news and bad news. Good news is, in my 35 years of flying, I've never caught the jet stream so perfectly. We're flying quicker than I've ever flown before. Then he gets back on. The bad news, though, is uh, we're horribly lost and we don't know where we're going. Well, I think that's an apt description of many of our lives. We're busy doing a hundred good things. But if someone goes, why are you doing all this? What's your purpose? What's your mission in life? What are you doing? Um... Uh, uh. Jesus is reorienting us. What's our mission? To seek to share the good news of the Savior, how He came to give hope to the world, and not just share good news, but then to emulate the good news, to do good to those around us, to seek to end oppression, to seek to alleviate poverty, to seek to love those who are in distress. Now, a slight misapplication often happens here that derails us. Now, you may have heard of Joni Erickson Tata. She became a quadriplegic, meaning she couldn't move anything except her head. When she was young, when she dove into water, and it was too shallow, and she was immediately paralyzed from the neck down. Well, she struggled for several years with depression and despair until she came to faith in Christ. And though she's now stuck in a wheelchair and able to, unable to do things that we take for granted every day, She's ministered to countless numbers of people sharing the hope of Christ and his mission for us. However, once she's talking to these teenagers and one of them raised his hand and he shared how his mother was getting demoralized by the burden of taking care of his mentally handicapped sister. He felt, you know, society should be doing more. So Joni kind of played along. She goes, oh, well, like what? He goes, oh, I'm not sure, but society ought to get more involved in the lives of people like my mother. Well, Joni again asked, well, may I ask what you've done to get more involved? The students smiled and shrugged. Joni again asked, have you helped alleviate the burden? Have you taken your sister on an outing lately? Maybe to the beach, she teased. Have you offered to do some shopping for your mother? 
Maybe your mom wouldn't be so demoralized, wouldn't feel so stressed or burdened if you rolled up your sleeves a little higher to help. The teenager chuckled, okay, okay, I see your point. Joni then says, I smiled. My point is this. Society is not a bunch of people way out there who sit around big tables and think up political trends or cultural drifts. What you do or don't do has a rippling effect on everyone around you. And even on a smaller scale, your participation can even make a huge difference in what your family decides to do with your sister. The classroom fell silent, Joni says, Jody says, and I knew the lesson was being driven home. I paused, scanned the face of each student and closed, saying, You, my friends, are society. And we could say in here, you, my friends, are the church. You know, Jesus' mission is our mission. It's the church's mission. But you don't have to wait until there's an event to fulfill it. You don't have to go, well, I'd love to do something, but the church hasn't set up an outreach event yet. You're the church. You're the outreach events. You have neighbors. You have coworkers. You have classmates. Reach out. And then our church is reaching out. We don't need to wait for us to organize. Open your eyes to those around you. You know, if we just loved and cared for our family, our neighbors, our coworkers, we'd be so busy we wouldn't have time to do anything else. There's plenty of ways for us to fulfill the mission of Jesus wherever we are. Now, this has been really the example of the church throughout. And whenever the church has grown, it has often been because God has blessed it through the hands and feet of the service of the church. This is often in the early church. I know the early church was not perfect. I'm not trying to say that. But they were very good at caring for the poor. Even the Roman emperor said, the impious Christians support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. You know, in those times, the sick would just be thrown out. They didn't have hospitals. And the Christians would go out and care for those that no one else would take care of. And so don't wait around for some big event to go help someone. Don't look around at your university and go, well, they haven't set up any service events here, so I guess I can't serve at my university. Don't wait in your school to go, well, the teachers, the principal haven't had a service day. It's not do a random act of kindness day today, so I can't do that today. Today is the day. Now's the time to live out the mission of Jesus. It's not necessarily an event. It's a lifestyle. But before we go to imitate him, we should first delight in him. Because even if every person on the globe imitated Christ, we would never take care of all the ills. Because sin had to be eradicated. And that is only done in Christ. So may we delight in him and what he's come to do. And then may we follow in his footsteps and live that life out so others may see. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we find our hope in nothing less than you. Lord, it is so discouraging and frustrating at times to look across our world and continue to see all of the ills that are there. Lord, we long for the day when your son returns and restores everything to the way it should be, where there's no more suffering, no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more death. Lord, may we be faithful to delight in your son and to not just delight, but then go out and share and live this good news with others. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.